Jesus is worth everything. So if you haven't noticed already, we're kind of changing up how we're doing the services for a little while, just to see what it feels like. So we're going to the message now, and we'll do some announcements and offering and things like that a little bit later. But um, I like that video. We're looking at joy and suffering for the treasure. Jesus is worth everything. We'll unfold more of that as we go through this message. Today, the passage that we're going to be looking at is Philippians 3. And that's it. I know you're waiting for a verse, right? Not going to get one. We're going to read a whole chapter today. Scripture is good, though. Philippians 3, and then we'll unfold this idea of joy and suffering for the treasure. So you can open up in your Bibles to Philippians 3, or you can follow along the screens. But this um, chapter is filled with a lot of gems. So listen as I read. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's that joy thing again. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, as garbage. Refuse. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call and God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. and Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What a passage. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we want to know you. And I feel that even as I say that, I may not know completely what I'm asking as I consider what Paul just wrote. I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to share in your sufferings that you might be known. Lord, I just don't want to do this by myself. I want us to be a church like this. So help us to know you, Lord. Help us to know what it means to be your child. Help us to know the treasure that you offer us. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to love it the way we should. Lord, be with my mouth and help me to say things that are good and true. Help me to say things that are an accurate reflection of your word uh, that's in sync with your spirit and what you want to do here in this church, in this community. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be with the hearts and the wills and the minds and the ears of those in this congregation that they might be able to hear what you want them to hear and they might be able to respond in ways that you want them to respond, that we might truly become a local body of Christ that declares you well, beginning here in Pekin. So bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick review. This is a real short series on Philippians. It took three weeks. Today is the third week, and we're looking at um, the um, joy and suffering for the church, joy and suffering for the gospel, and today joy and suffering for the treasure. Another way I was thinking as I was wrestling through trying to make this make sense is, is looking at this this way. You can look at it as the audience, joyfully suffering for the church. Now, this week, as I was thinking about this, there's there an assumption that I had that I felt like I really need to make clear. You guys do understand that the church is not the building. If none of us showed up here, there'd be no church. No signs that say First Baptist Church can create a church here. Just, it'd just be, I don't know what it'd be. It'd be a building. Sometimes we say things, I, I, I wrestle with that if I'm distracting when I say, hey, meet me at the church, is if I'm promoting that idea of the building being the church. The building is not the church. This is property that we enjoy as believers, but we are the church. The church is not a building. It's not an organization. It's not a ministry. The church is a, is a family. If I read scripture right, the church is closer than a family. The unity of the church is both a witness and an experience that is worth happily suffering for. In fact, this week, I know we covered Philippians 2 
um, when we were looking at the church, but I, I saw this ver- something in this verse that I didn't notice before, and I wanted to share it with you because I think it's helpful. But Philippians 2, four says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the reason this jumped out at me, because I know where my sinful heart goes when I hear a verse like that. Right? I want an out, right? I hear a hard verse like that, and I want to find, is there anything I could wiggle through? And there is. There's a word only. That word only is something I could wiggle through. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest. So only kind of implies that, okay, so I could look to my own interest also and to the interest of others, except here's what I didn't notice before when I was looking at that. And I do have it if you guys want to see it. I, I was going to put it on the screen, but I didn't think it would be helpful. But I do have the... Um, the Greek there, if you want to see that, because we all read Greek. Um, the word only doesn't appear in the Greek. It's kind of implied, and the translators put it there. And so, think about that. What does that do to the sentence? It changes a lot, doesn't it? It guts the out that my sinful heart is trying to grab a hold of. What Paul's really writing there, here's why, here's why the translators put the word only. It's because you have the Greek word kai, which is and, or it can also be translated also. And so people see that word and they, um, and they assume that only would be helpful there. But what Paul's really saying is, is he's trying to get us off of ourselves. Stop looking to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Also, because I know that you guys are naturally selfish people and are going to be looking to yourselves' interests anyway, But please, let's battle that and look to the interest of others. So the first thing we looked at is joyfully suffering for the church, the audience of Jesus. The second thing we looked at is is the message, joyfully suffering for the gospel. And I put this in several ways. I mean, one way I could put this is, is the gospel is generally about mercy and grace. And if you've never really considered the, the theological concepts of mercy and grace, let me give you a simple, a simple explanation of what they, what they are. They're, they're two sides to the same coin. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. There's something you deserve. You deserve to be separated from God because of your sin. And mercy says, I'm not going to give that to you. Grace is the other side of that. It is God giving you, or I could say God gifting you with something you do not deserve. And that is to be reconciled with God and all the things that come with salvation and eternal life. So that's kind of the essence of the, of the gospel, but I also put it in four sections last week, and I actually alliterated it today. It might actually make it easier for you guys to remember, so I, I like doing that kind of thing. Here, I'll use the letter P. But we looked at the problem or punishment, which is our sin. We looked at the payment or the price. Remember, we said the only thing valuable enough to pay the price for our sin against an infinite God is an infinite worth, which is Jesus. So we looked at the payment. Then we looked at the power, or you could say the proof. Isn't that fun to alliterate things? A lot of, a lot of P words there which is the resurrection, which proved that God is able to do what he said. And then finally, we looked at the prize, or paradise, which is the beauty of new creation and new life. So that was the second thing we looked at in Philippians. And today, we are looking at the reward. 
Okay, the audience, the message, the reward. Joyfully suffering for the treasure. And we're going to ask three things. We're going to ask, what is treasure? We're going to ask, how do we attain this treasure? And what specifically is the treasure that is promised? So what is treasure? Well, first of all, it's simply something that's of great worth or great value. We can say that. It could be something desirable, something enjoyable, something valuable, something pleasurable. But all those ideas seem to be in conflict with the idea of suffering. What are some of our treasures? Now, I made three lists here. They're not going to be on the screen, and you get clear of the screen there, Paul. But I made three lists here to help us try and wrestle with what are treasures to us. What are things that we see as valuable? And I put them in a list of physical, emotional, and spiritual. So maybe, maybe a treasure to me is health, or wealth, or possessions, or a house, or a car, or jewelry, or fitness. Maybe a treasure to me is emotional. It has to do with my family, or it has to do with recognition. I'm going to be seen as the important person that I think I am. Or tranquility, or, or happiness, leisure, friendship, or acceptance. Or maybe it, your treasures are in the spiritual realm of peace, or forgiveness, reconciliation, community, sanctification, eternal life, and, and mercy. And we'll revisit those concepts of what are the things that you treasure, and what is God calling us to seek. But there's a false concept in Christianity, the concept that God is not calling us to seek the greater treasure. That concept comes from Bible verses, so we need to do business with it. For instance, in Matthew 16, 24, we can read this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we read that verse, and we start to get this concept that God is calling us to reject the treasure, reject reject the things that are valuable. Think more lowly of yourself. Those are some other verses, right? Sink down low. Do the right thing because the right thing is virtuous. The atheist, a famous atheist, Ayn Rand, she was an author, a novelist, but she she couldn't stand Christianity. Her idea of Christianity was that Christ called people to sacrifice our greater values in order to embrace lesser values, right? Deny yourself, have a miserable life in order to make a better life for someone else. And Ayn Rand said, that's not any religion I want to follow. That's not any God that I want to, I want to get under. Well, I want to say that's a false narrative. Let's look at Philippians 2. We'll see hints of it here. Where Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Is Ayn Rand right? Does Christianity call us to deny ourselves the greater values in order to embrace the lower values? Paul goes on, let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what's the answer? I love this. The answer is, finish the verse. 1624, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. 1625, for 
Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's the psalmist say? The steadfast love of the Lord is what? Better than life. Go on. The next verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus isn't calling us to deny the treasure. He's calling us to see the true treasure. To set down the lower values and embrace the higher values. Ayn Rand couldn't see that. Think of the rich young man that we're, that we're aware of in Mark 10. You guys probably know the story. He's the one that came to Jesus and in verse 17 says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives a simple answer. Simple and hard. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. What we don't often hear in this story is the disciples' reaction to this. The disciples are confused. And why are they confused? Because it seems like a simple story to us. But in the disciples' context, they always had this assumption, it's, it's, it's in Jewish history, that riches, blessings, wealth... Health, comfort, all those were signs of God's favor. And so now they're really confused because they're like, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. You said sell everything? It wasn't because they didn't want to follow the sell everything thing, but this just waged war with what they thought about how they're supposed to value things. Wait a second, we thought treasure was a blessing for God's favor. Now you're saying to deny that? We're confused, Jesus. And so in in verse uh, 28, who is it? It's Peter. (laughs) It says all the disciples were confused, but Peter's always the one that has the courage to open his mouth at the expense of himself. But he says, Jesus, uh, see, we've, we've left everything to follow you. So what is Peter really asking there? Think about it. What's he really asking? He's asking, what's in it for us? What do we get? We, we left everything to follow you. Now you're telling him to sell everything and give it to the poor. And I, I thought that if we followed you, we'd be part of the new kingdom. And you'd take this political victory over everybody, and we would have the riches of the kingdom of God, and we would be the, the pinnacle of, of humanity on earth. And now you're, what? We left our families. I left my fishing job. I haven't seen my wife. (laughs) What's in it for us? And Jesus responds. See, Peter wasn't happy with the payoff. We're sacrificing our lives to follow you. What do we get? And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond like this. Peter, get over yourself. Sacrifice is virtuous in itself. That's not what he says, is it? Here's what Jesus says. And I think he said this probably with a rebuke. There's a tone that he's correcting Peter. Peter, are you serious? You're following me, and it isn't worth it. Let me just give you a little bit of a picture, Peter. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive... He's not saying sacrifice in and of itself is virtuous. 
Sacrifice for a higher treasure is virtuous, is what he's saying. No one has sacrificed all these things who will not receive 100-fold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Two times in this passage, to the rich young man, he says, you will have treasure in heaven. And then to the disciples, he says, you will re- what you will receive far outweighs what you can ever give. Jesus does not call us to lay down our highest values in order to embrace the lower values. He's calling us to get our vision right. Start valuing what you're supposed to value and stop valuing the garbage that you call valuable. So there is treasure that God calls us to go after. But how do we go after this? How do we obtain this treasure? For the rich young man, it involves selling everything. There's another verse, though. It's a one-verse parable in Matthew 13, verse 44, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, there's that word joy again. It's too important for me to just glaze over it. The man didn't see the field and go, man, this is going to be expensive. No, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, this treasure costs everything. And again, in both of those stories, the question on the table is eternal life or the kingdom of heaven. So let me make another clarification here. Is this not a works-based salvation? Isn't it beginning to sound that way? The way to be saved, the way to be involved and connected to the kingdom of heaven is to sell everything you have? Is that a works-based salvation? It sure sounds like it, right? Well, it can't be if you read the scope of Scripture. It's not a works-based salvation. What it is is values clarification. Values are like baggage, The more you're carrying, the less you'll be able to take. And when Jesus hands you true value, our hands are full of our treasures. And Jesus says, look at what I have. It's valuable. Take it. And you're like, "Uh, I got to put this down, don't I? I mean, can you, no, I can't stack it on top. Can I just, see, values are like baggage. And in order to take the true value that Jesus wants to hand you, you have to let, set down what you think is valuable. Let's go back to Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. And Paul wrote, and I'm going to highlight a couple of things that I've already read, but just listen to this again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I set it down for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, setting it down, because of the surpassing worth, the worth, the value, the treasure of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, setting them down, counting them as rubbish, in order that what? I may gain, I may get the value, the treasure, the reward, the prize, Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. See, is this a work-based salvation? No. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. This is what faith looks like. When you see what Jesus is offering you, 
you view all that this life has to offer as garbage in comparison. It's, it's hard to view this life that way, isn't it? Because there is beauty in this life. There is residual glory that still exists even in the falling, fallen world. But Paul says that when I see Christ correctly, all else appears to be rubbish, appears to be garbage in comparison to the glory of the treasure that Christ has set before us. The problem is not in Jesus. The problem is not in the teaching. The problem is not in the scripture. The problem is in what I value. There's values clarification that I need. There are things that I value that are not worth the things that Christ is giving me. John Bloom writes in an article, Treasure in the Field. Now there was a cost to obtaining the treasure... Viewed one way, the cost seemed high. It cost him everything he owned. But viewed another way, the cost was very small. Standing in the field, the man did a quick cost-benefit analysis. It didn't take him long to realize that selling all his possessions was going to make him wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. He would have been a fool not to do whatever was necessary to buy that field. Are you a fool? I know that's a big question. <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus is not calling everyone to do what he called the rich young man to do. We know that just by the context of Scripture. We know that there is Barnabases. We know that there are people in the, in the Scriptures that had great possessions. And they sold a lot of them in order to follow Jesus. But here's the question that crosses my mind when I think of the rich young ruler. What if? What if? What if Jesus stood here today, right here, and looked at our stage, looked at our people, and did just that? What if he stood right here and said, Chris, I want you to follow me. And I'll say, I want to follow you. He says, great, because it would be, I'd be my delight to have you with me. Great, Jesus. Now what? Just, just go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. He looks out at First Baptist and says, I want you to go with me too. Don't you want to be with me? Yes, I want to be with you, Jesus. Good, come along. Just go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. I'm not, I'm not saying that he calls everyone to do that. But what if you were the rich young ruler and he looked you in the eye and asked you to do that? How many would be left? How many would stay in their seats? How many would get up and say, the treasure of Jesus far outweighs everything that I have ever worked for, everything that I have ever earned, everything. How many would obtain the treasure? How many would reveal the object of their faith? How many would reveal if their true faith even existed? I'm not saying that we're called to do that. I'm just saying test your hearts before we rebuke the rich young man. What if he asked you? What is the treasure? What is the treasure that Jesus is offering? That Paul is living for? You might say it could be some of that list that we talked about, right? But some might think, that, that wouldn't that be idolatry? 
if any of those things were the treasure? What is idolatry? Webster says to worship a physical object as God, but the common theological definition is anything that replaces the one true God. So let me ask you this, to help us get our minds right and to help us discern whether our, our treasure is in the right place. Okay? How do you view heaven? This is a good test question for me. How do I view heaven? I like to sit there and think about heaven. My basic definition of heaven is one word. It's better. It's, it's better. That's, 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 that's the only thing I could think of to, de- to define heaven. In other words, I think of the most pleasurable experience I've ever had, the most pleasurable vacation, and if time were to freeze right there and live for eternity, that would be paradise. And then I think, well, God's bigger than that, so it's got to be better. So I start thinking of things that haven't existed or can't exist, but I can at least imagine in my mind. It must be like that, and if it just froze like that and lasted for eternity, that would be paradise. But then I think that my mind has fallen, it's sinful, and that the mind of God can produce things that far outweigh or far better than anything that I could ever imagine, so it's got to be even better than my wildest imaginations. That's heaven, and it's paradise, and that's exciting. Here's some descriptions I've heard of when I hear people describe heaven. Heaven is fish, fishing on the crystal lake. That would be heaven. Heaven is walks on the beach. Heaven is cruising the mountain roads, jamming with a flawless guitar. Endless golf courses. <laughs> or maybe it's a spiritual thing. Heaven is this perfect peace, or heaven is forgiveness, or heaven is sinlessness. But here's where it all comes to a head. All those descriptions of heaven, as delightful as they are, and I would even get, say as possibly true as they are, where is Jesus in those descriptions? You see, even the gifts of God can be a substitute for true worship of God, and therefore we become idolaters. Romans 5. We'll bring this gift to a head here. So what, are, what is the treasure? Well, Paul says in Romans 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Mm, Justification. That must be, that's the treasure, to be justified. So justification, is that the treasure that we joyfully suffer for? Go on. Much more. No, it's better. It's better than justification. Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? The theological term is propitiation, being saved from the wrath of God. So propitiation. That's the treasure that we joyfully suffer for, right? No, keep going. Paul keeps going. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son. So reconciliation, that's, that's the treasure that I joyfully suffer for, right? No, keep going. He says much more. It's better. It's even better. It keeps going. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's life. So regeneration, that must be the treasure that we joyfully suffer for. But he keeps going. More than that, it's better. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom whom we now receive reconciliation. And this is the end of Paul's line of reasoning in Romans. 
The treasure is Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. Reconciliation, justification, propitiation, regeneration. Those are effects of the treasure. Those are gifts given to us, but they aren't the treasure in and of themselves. They're like crowns, you could say. Like in James 1.12, we hear, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to, to those who love him. So that is our treasure, right? We're living for a hat. We're living for a shiny hat. You ever thought what those crowns are for? Crown of life, the crown of righteousness. You ever thought what those crowns are for? Revelation 4. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. Who is the him? It's Jesus who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns. They cast their crowns before the throne. The crowns aren't the treasure. The crowns enable us to enjoy the treasure. The crown gives us a better ability to enjoy, worship, and praise Jesus. But Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure that we would sell everything to be with. Jesus is the treasure that we would give it all away to the poor in order to follow. Jesus is the treasure. Not the stuff, even the good stuff that God gives. Those are just gifts that enable us to enjoy the treasure, which is Jesus. Is this how you view Jesus? Is he your treasure? Or is he only a tool that you use to get what you really want? Are you merely using Jesus for your best life now? For a better marriage? For parenting tips? Those are all good things, but they aren't what we should be living for. Are you using Jesus to get ahead in your job? Is he a resource for community life? Does he enable you to find babysitters, <laughs> babysitting activities for your kids? Does he give you a moral peace, financial security? Yes, all those things might be a part of the Christian life. Might be, but they aren't the treasure. They aren't the essence. They aren't where our faith should be placed. If so, do you know the treasure? Do you really know the treasure? Do you even see the treasure Are you even digging in the right field? Let me close with this. Mark 10. We already looked at this. Not on the screens, but I referenced it. And in this verse, where Jesus rebukes Peter gently, we can see all three elements of our Philippians series. In Mark 10, he says, The treasure that is Jesus Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. So there's the second thing. And then finally, this is my reading at least. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. I believe he's talking about the church there. The bride of Jesus. The treasure is Jesus. The gospel is the message of Jesus. The church is the bride of Jesus with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is a good thing. And as we grow in our Christian walk, we should be able to joyfully suffer for the church, for the gospel, and for the treasure.